happy to talk about my book because I don't talk about it when I'm working on it. People say, what's your book about? And I just, I don't answer that question because I cannot sum it up my books anyway, in, in, in one word, in a way that will convey what this is all about. And it will sound not interesting. So I don't even, I, I just don't, it's very annoying for people I know that I'm like, you know what, uh, when it comes out, ask me again. Ask me a year from now. Yeah. Or even, I don't know, read it. <laughs> so it's a fair question. Like, you know, you, you, you ask people how work is and what they're up to. I have something similar and I think it might even be more superstitious where Specifically for the podcast, I don't tell people who I'm interviewing before I interview them. I have this weird thing in my brain that just assumes that if I start blabbing about it before it happens, then it's going to go horribly wrong. Yeah, I also, yeah, I have a, a, a fear because if I if I talk to I talk about the book, I'm going to want to make it sound interesting. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some of the tidbits from the book that I then have a fear someone will take that and it'll be all, they'll do little short hits on the internet. And by the time the book comes out, everything in it will be already all over the internet and stale. Uh, so that, and it's stupid, but that's my weird paranoia. I, obviously, you have a broad idea when you're putting it together, what it's going to be. Is it just an issue of sort of you not being your best publicist that you can't, you can't do the elevator pitch? Yeah, exactly. I'm terrible at elevator. Also, as uh, for the, at least the first six months of, a, of working on a book, I don't know what it's about, really. I don't know what's going to be in it. I don't know where I'm going or why I pitched this book or what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it because I'm confused and it just makes me nervous and anxious. And I I just try not to talk about it. What was the pitch and how was the pitch different than the final product? Well, initially, I thought I was going to write about kind of the other side of it um, with not, not wildlife as animals as perpetrators of crimes, but victims, because I got interested in uh, the forensics of um, wildlife crime. And this, I met this woman who was the, an expert on how to tell real versus counterfeit dried tiger penis, because uh, these are people who deal with uh, uh, trafficking in, in um, animal, endangered animal parts. And I was like, whoa, that's a pretty specialized talent. I don't know this case anymore, but you know, for years you could probably go down to Chinatown and buy at least a facsimile. It, it, it would have been a facsimile because the tiger penis is tiny. It's like the size of their claw. Whereas uh, the things that they sell as tiger penis uh, is deer, cow, horse. <laughs> it's that big before or after it's dried? At, when it's dried. I mean, if you take a dried horse penis and a dried tiger penis, the tiger penis, well, yeah, you're not seeing what I'm doing. It's like the size of a tiger's claw. You know, it's like less than two inches. It's it's a little thing. I was just trying to give the tiger a little bit of credit that like before that that's like after it's dried. It is after it's dried. Yes, that's fair. However, we're you know compared to the deer penis, which is a good six seven inches after it's dried, so it's um you know a more impressive organ. Anyway, I, I was I was poking around in that world, and then I wandered over to agricultural crime because I'd heard about people going in before the Super Bowl. You know, when people eat a lot of guacamole and stealing hundreds of avocados to the point where it is classed as grand theft avocado. And I got all excited about that, that there was such a thing. Uh, so I wandered down the world of agricultural crime, which turns out not to be that interesting. It's a lot of people stealing farm equipment that's left out in the field and it's run by sheriff's departments and they don't really want anything to do with me. So, so I, they, I wound my way around to um, 
human wildlife conflict and uh, animals committing crimes in the sense of, you know, our definition of crime, murder, manslaughter, jaywalking. It must be nerve wracking not knowing where you're going when you set out and actually start this process. It is. It's my fault, you know, because I'm impatient and I don't want to write a very thorough book proposal that's 30 pages long and that details everything and that I can then use as a roadmap to sit down and do the book. I don't ever do that. I just kind of, yeah, I give, you know, I give my agent a kind of a general idea and then I complete, you know, and he sells the book. My editor kind of shrugs and goes, okay, if that seems to be where your interests are, go ahead. Uh, I don't get it, but go ahead. And uh, then I, you know, like a few months later, I'm like, what am I doing? What is this book? <laughs> And it, it, it always uh, evolves a lot. I, it is nerve. Yes, it's nerve wracking. I'm an idiot. I should I should do a better job of looking into it before I sell it. It's worked out for you thus far. Or have there been any instances where like you got pretty far down the road and it just it didn't click? No, no. I, I, I usually find a way to um, pull out of my tailspin before I crash into the ground. I don't uh, I've never sold a book and then backed out. I have talked about a book with my editor and she's said, yeah, that sounds interesting. And then I've spent two months looking into it and realized there's no way I can do this book logistically or because I've misunderstood what exists in the real world. And I've had a fantasy that that could be done and it can't. What's an example of logistically not being able to execute on an idea? Okay. I had an idea. I wanted to do a book about disaster response. What happens in the, in the aftermath of a major earthquake or flood or fire, you know, major catastrophic event. Like how does that unfold? Who are the players? What can you do to help people? And so to do that, you basically have to say for the next two years of my life, I will be on call with a go bag ready to get on. I don't know what, you know, the the the, the airport's probably closed as it turns out. There's nowhere to stay. And the people who are staying there our first responders and people who are saving lives and setting up triage tents and medical facilities. And I, you know, I would just be in the way, but it was more just the logistics of, of getting myself there quickly enough uh, because what's most interesting to me is the first 48 hours. And uh, how do you, you know, I'm calling all these different agencies going, would there be a way like when you get called that the first thing you do is call Mary Roach (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'll try and you're the first responders, first responder. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's just like the, the, the last thing on their mind is, and it should be I'm, I'm me. I mean, I'm not, I'm just like, I'm not important. This is, you know, this is a major catastrophic world-class disaster and somebody's going to be going, wait a minute, how will Mary Roach get here? <laughs> you know, it was, so it was, it was stupid of me to even, entertain that thought, but I, I'm very persistent and, and, and um, delusionally optimistic that if I find the right person, they'll go, yes, I want this to happen. I will do everything I can for you. And that didn't happen. I spent a couple months though, kind of, cause I, I really only needed one major disaster. I could kind of do other things that are relevant and trainings and various, I, I could come at it from, um, from other perspectives that didn't require my being on the ground at a major disaster, but I really had to have one. It was also, it it put me in this weird position of waiting and hoping for a major (laughs) catastrophic event that takes thousands of lives. That's uh, creepy. The term for that in, uh, in war reporting is war junkie. 
Mm-hmm. There's this whole class of embedded reporters, I think, that really get a a thrill out of just being in and around war. Well, yeah, and also, you know, hoping for a good scene, you know, which is a scene in which people are uh, killed and terribly injured, and and that felt that felt kind of bad. By the nature of what you do and how you report and how you write, does it have to be experiential? Yes, some of it. Some of it, I like it to be. Partly because that's fun for me to report. I enjoy that. Uh, That's why I do what I do. I love the reporting and the travel. And I also find it so much more fun to write. You know, you're writing scenes with people and conversations and dialogue. And that's that's the fun bits for me. Um, I I also like uh, uh, including historical, a few historical chapters, particularly if it's very uh, confined to like one person and this particular interest of theirs so that I'm not on the line for the comprehensive look at some chapter of history because I'm not a historian. I don't know how they do that. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I need an archive and a box of files. And then I'm like, this is going to be a great chapter. Like the, in Grunt, the shark repellent chapter. That's based on a couple of boxes from the National Archives. Just great material, letters back and forth, you know, primary source material. Uh, I love doing that, but I couldn't do a whole book. I don't have the historian chops. You've got this great niche that you've carved out for yourself where you can be like, I'm not a historian, I'm not a scientist. And that kind of... That lets you off the hook for, for certain expectations. True. That's true. Yeah. I'm a, just I'm a multiple poser. I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. I just do a little of that. I won't do too much. Yeah, I know. It's true. In a sense, you know, you were at the scene of a major disaster. I mean, we all were for the past year and a half, right? I mean, yeah, we, we all had firsthand experience for better or for worse. Did you feel compelled or interested or doing reporting in that way as things were unfolding? No, no, not at all. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't feel that this was in any way a topic that resonated for me. Um, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist nor a, um, virologist or, uh, I, I had, also, you know, to be able to go and report, and, and I like to talk to people in person. I like to be in the lab. I like to be on the scene, and that wasn't happening. So, so uh, fortunately, I was done with the reporting for Fuzz. So I was free. To, I had some projects that don't require going anywhere. Um, did a kids' adaptation of Packing for Mars, stuff like that. That I just did, you could do it from a desk in a room. So no, no desire to also. Uh, so many books being done uh, coming out right now and in the next year about the the pandemic and the lead up to it. I mean, we've already got um, Michael Lewis, his book's already out. Uh, Nikki, Nikki Twilley and Jeff Mayno, uh, that wonderful quarantine book, the history and future of quarantine until proven safe, which they were working on for 10 years leading up to this. Talk about good timing. The vaccine, right? The, like doing all the research for the past 10 years and, yes. and having it, having it already. Ta-da! Yeah, I, 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 you know, it's funny. I, I talked to a lot of musicians about this, about the idea of doing, of doing a quarantine album and why it's a bad idea because presumably theoretically, if, and when we do come out of this, like, I don't know. The last thing that you want to do is listen to a quarantine album and, or like, you know, when the, um, 
the Michael Wolf book came out about Trump, like the landslide book about his final days. It's like, I don't want to read a book about that now. <laughs> don't make me go back there. No, I know that's, that was also, I mean, I'm slow. It takes me a couple of years at least to, to do a book. And by that time people will be like, what was, Oh yeah. The pandemic. Oh yeah. I think I remember that. We'll be two pandemics removed from this. Yeah. Pandemic. Right. Yeah. This one will seem quaint. <laughs> I get the sense that a big part of what draws you to a specific topic is that it's, it's not something anybody else is really thinking about. You're worried about spoilers for for your own book is having this arsenal of interesting things that nobody really knows about. Exactly. That is, uh, yeah, that is, that is why I'm so weird and squirrely about talking about the book. Cause I feel like I, you know, I, I work hard to try. I try to find things that are, that really aren't out there, but you know, anytime, you, you know, anytime you look something up on the internet, you're like, what somebody else knows about it? I thought I was the only one. But you have to get I me. Mean, you have to just look at like how many people have seen that particular link on that. I mean, it, it's all out there, but um, you know, the trick is to find things that aren't all over the internet. You know, they may be in some corner, but it's very hard to to be the the original discoverer unless it's something that happened in your to yourself to your own your own, in your own life. Sure. And, that, and that's where the experiential part comes in. That's where the right. actual reporting happens. It seems to be a big, big source of humor, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the a lot of the jokes or a lot of the funny bits are just these almost mundane conversations that you're having with people about these completely batshit concepts. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it, it, with that, that's what that's the other reason I so much of it, it, it is set uh, in that there is a setting and an, an experience and not that, not that it's not like stunt journalism. What I'm doing isn't particularly interesting. I'm just sitting having conversations, but I'm stepping into that person's world, which is often a very surreal thing because these are pockets of science I, uh, and life that I didn't know even existed. So, uh, so that part of it is my own cluelessness. Um, and uh, also it's, it's just, the world is interesting. You know, these, People are nuts and fabulous. I think it's the tension of how serious they take their jobs and how entrenched they are and how absurd the thing that they actually do is. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the, in Gulp, two of my favorite people were, they were actually in the same, um, it was in Food Valley in the Netherlands. Uh, there's an oral processing lab. And it, there's this guy there. He's probably almost ready to retire. And all he studies, he studies chewing and the teeth, but he revealed this incredibly interesting stuff. I won't go into it because it's in the book. But he was—he was just—and the saliva lady down the hall, who was just so passionate about this miracle substance, saliva, and all the things that it does for you. And she's like, "It's not just moistening." You know, I get so upset. <laughs> she's, you know, she was uh, just, you know, that passion for some, for basically for spit. She's a woman who is passionate about spit and, and, and also just an interesting person, beautiful Italian woman with fabulous clothes, not what you imagine a spit researcher to be. So every, and I just stum- I stumble onto these people. I don't, you know, seek them out and ask for a photograph or anything. I'm just, people are interesting. I don't know how, like how much in any specific instance you necessarily want to go down that specific rabbit hole, but I assume that part of the story is how people got to that, how people got to be how she got to be the spit lady or how she got to be the dried tiger penis lady. Like some interesting yes. 
right. series of events must have happened in their lives to get them there. Yeah, I often don't get to the whole backstory because I'm 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 really uh, profiling them and their work. So it's a very it's a very little sliver of them. Um, I think the longer I stay with someone, the more the more I start to realize, you know, I start to see them as a whole person. I meet their family. We, I have dinner with their husband or their child. And, and, and suddenly that actually is harder for me because I'm uh, it's, it's easier to present the scientist at work it, as just, a, a you know, that little isolated bubble of their lives rather than to get into their their personal life and their story, which you would, of course, if you were you know doing a New Yorker profile of that person. But uh, I'm, I'm, um, it's almost, and it isn't even their whole, it's, it's, it's the work, their work that day that I'm there, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a tiny little sliver. Uh, and uh, I kind of enjoy, you know, sort of taking that sliver and presenting it almost not as is, but as a little vignette, almost just, just a snapshot of this person. And of course, it's totally incomplete. I don't really know this person. Oh, I've spent a day with them or two days sometimes a week, but I assume editing is a huge time sink for you of actually like cutting these things down. Sure. I, you know, 95% of the notes that I take and the transcripts of conversations isn't used. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 you come away with far and I'm just there for a day. I mean, I think about people who, who really immerse themselves into somebody's whole life, like a biographer. How do you possibly, edit down a life. I'm just editing, I'm just editing an, a, a, a snippet and, and there's still so much stuff I'm, you know, that, that doesn't get used. For Fuzz specifically, how far into the process were you when things actually started clicking and you actually had an idea of what, what you were, what you were actually writing? I would say it was a couple of months where I was thinking I, that maybe there's a way to, to, uh, to both halves you know the, the animal as perpetrator and animal as victim maybe i can track down the sweatshop i could i didn't let go of that easily the tiger penis fabricating sweatshop in asia <laughs> i i hope you're keeping that like on on the back burner your back pocket because <laughs> that is worth yeah. exploring i did i talked to the guy who'd been to some of those and he was just about to leave uh, i think it was bangkok he'd been tra- transferred somewhere and the person he put me in touch with uh, wasn't didn't get back to me so I kind of dropped it, but it, but I was trying to find a way to weave both of those together and it just didn't work. And I thought, you know, um, you know, all of the agricultural crime too, I was going to figure out some way uh, to, to keep the topic broad enough to keep, to, to include all those, but it just didn't work. So, uh, but I'd say that happened pretty quick. Like after the second month, um, I realized that that was um, stupid. So uh, I just narrowed the focus to um, animals uh, breaking our laws. Was it a specific story on that side of things that really tipped the scales for you? No, I think it was when I, I think I, I found that book. Uh, it's a 1906 book called The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals, which is all these bizarre cases from the 1600s, 1700s uh, about animals being sort of tried in, in a courtroom with legal representation and punished and hung and killed or jailed, imprisoned cows. I mean, um, pigs imprisoned. And uh, that I think sealed it for me. That was kind of a, um, it's like, you know, just thinking about, well, obviously 
the legal system is not the way to go about this. What about science? Is there some better way to do this? And how do we do it? It's kind of a weird thing. We have these laws. Animals don't, it's like, they don't care. They don't read. They don't, they don't know. They're just be animals being animals. But uh, so we have to figure out some other way to deal with it. And then I, at some point I stumbled onto the science of human wildlife conflict and the fact that there are bear managers and human leopard conflict researchers. And uh, that, that, I realized then that there's, there, there is this whole you know, science. It's not a hard science like chemistry or genetics, but it's a science and there's textbooks and people who devote their lives to it. And then I realized this is a little world I knew nothing about that I can step into and poke around. You alluded to this earlier, but this idea of entering a topic with little prior knowledge of that world. Do you think ultimately that's a strength when it comes to actually sort of sitting down and, and crafting a broader narrative around the stories that you're finding? I do. I, I, uh, you know, it sounds kind of, it's like I'm, I'm making the case for ignorance. <laughs> but Well, ignorance at the beginning, but eventually. Yes, I do. I do. Yeah, because I'm discovering it as the reader is discovering it. So I have this sense of wonder and curiosity and, whoa, this is new to me. And that comes through in the writing. And it also keeps it on a level that's not too complicated, I guess I, I, I want to say. Um, I think the more you know about a topic, the more you're going to lose people. Like you, what's interesting to you when you start to get down to a molecular level or, you know, you start to, if you're a physicist studying the physics of surfaces, you know, what's interesting to you is just completely foreign to, to, to people outside that world. So I'm, I'm much closer to the reader than I am to the subject that I'm invest, you know, the, the researcher that I'm, in, I, I'm talking to. And I, I think that is an advantage. The disadvantage is that I'm always a little bit on thin ice. Uh, I, I'm always a little close to not getting something wrong line by line, but not knowing the big picture. And, and somebody who's from that world can read it and go, yeah, she doesn't really know what she's talking about. She's not wrong here, but she doesn't know the bigger picture because she she doesn't she's not a scientist. So so uh, I, I'm always a little bit in danger of that, or I worry about that. So I for that reason try to uh, I show I read I read the chapter to the researcher so that they can flag anything that I've said that makes me sound like an idiot or that's patently false <laughs> or that needs to be explained better or. In more detail. The people who the, a specific chapter is about are ultimately helping vet things for you. Yes. Yeah, I do that now. I didn't do that in the beginning always, but I I do that for most of my chapters now. I, I don't send it to someone. I just, I, I get on the phone with them and I read it to them. If you, you know, kind of if you send it to someone, I think there's a temptation to read it five times and start making little comments and Maybe you could rephrase this or could you add this? This is important to me, you know, that kind of thing. And that, you know, I get that, but I, I would rather them just flag things that are wrong. So I just, I, I read it to them and um, cross my fingers. I am really curious what that, what that experience is like, because I do reporting for my main job and it's, I absolutely don't want the people that this is about to read this or see it before it goes up. It must be a kind of, surreal experience it's terrifying for you but definitely for them to yeah. be read this story about them well i uh i i try to when i first contact someone i i offer to send a book a past book i want them to know 
what they're getting into. I don't want them to be taken by surprise. Like, I thought you were writing a textbook. What is this? So uh, I've tried to prepare them so that if it's something that makes them uncomfortable, uh, they'll, they, they'll let me know up front. And, and uh, I, I feel more comfortable when somebody who's read one of my books is like, oh, yeah, I know what you do. I'm excited to be in one of your books. I don't worry about those folks. It's more folks that haven't really read the book or don't know what I do or how I do it. And so those are a little nerve wracking, but but people, people respond pretty well. You know, I, I'm not doing takedowns of people. I'm not, you know, um, and and it's great because they catch things that are wrong. So that, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. I was suggesting earlier that uh, obviously it's true to a certain extent that these, these are people who are like very serious about what they do in spite of the kind of inherent absurdity of some of these jobs. Do you find that by and large, though, that the people that you deal with have a sense of humor or at least like understand that what they do is inherently weird? I do. Yeah, I do. Because I don't get people. I, I don't I don't get a sort of shocked and confused response from people. I I, I think that um, they. Yeah, I, I think I think they're aware of that. I, I, I can't think of a time when somebody kind of said, wow, I I thought you were going to do a really serious straight take on this and get into a lot more detail. Specifically the, the tiger penis. We keep coming back to the tiger penis lady, which I feel like has been a theme for all of our conversations that there's just been <laughs> like one, not tiger penises specifically, but that there's been like one, one yeah. hook that I can't. Yeah. Basically you tell me something and I can't stop thinking about it for the duration <laughs> of the conversation. I've got I've got photographs I can on my phone. I can send you some photographs. You send it to me late at night, like you up. <laughs> no, the tiger penis lady was hilarious. She completely gets it. She's got she she put together um, the most comprehensive hair library in the world, which is and, and which is really interesting because you know, you you're trying to figure out what is this contraband that we found here. Is it an endangered species? Is what is it? Uh, and it's not that simple because animals have guard hairs they've got under hair they've got regular hair they've got whiskers they've got you know they've got 10 different types of hair on one species so it's incredibly complicated and and kind of interesting but she gets absolutely she was hilarious she she totally understands how it comes across to people you're entirely finished with your research by the time shit started getting real Uh, i had there's one more chapter I was going to do up in Toronto and the, I remember the border closed and I called United and this was March, like the third week of March or the fourth week of March. And I had a deadline the very latest I could turn that in was the end of May. And I, I said to the guy at United airlines, eh, everything will be open by May, of course. Right. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. Call back. Maybe. Yeah. Ha, har har. No clue. Hmm. It was really hard to differentiate this from the eight other quote unquote pandemics that we've lived through over the past, yeah. you know, decade. It's hard to know how, yeah, how bad it was going to be. Right. There was H1N1, uh, yep. which I remember my husband's cousin is a doctor and he sent us all prescriptions for uh, whatever that therif not Theraflu, but there's um, a drug. An antiviral. Uh, Tamiflu, right? Yeah, he sent us all prescriptions. I remember thinking, really? I don't know. They just threw it away. Uh, but those in those the people in the know uh, 
were pretty concerned pretty fast. My, uh, my office mate's wife is a science reporter, Molly Bentley, and she uh, knows a lot about pandemics and viruses. And she, like her, her husband, Gordy, stopped coming into our office early on. Uh, if he came in, she had a stopwatch. He could come in for like 14 minutes and then he had to leave. And I remember thinking, really, Molly? <laughs> like, like seriously? I don't think so. This is, you know, just and, and going, well, you know, 90% of people are okay. Don't die. You know, I had to just, just not, it's just bizarre how quickly it evolved. There are still a lot of people who will say that. A year and a half later, a lot of people who have not left that initial mindset that, yes. <laughs> that we had. Yeah. Yeah, but I I, can't, I just can't imagine uh, having have if you'd been in the process of researching a book uh, like mine that requires you know fifteen flights somewhere uh, uh, that would have been just just uh, pretty pretty much a dead time. Have you at least sort of planted the initial seeds about what you think you might be doing next? Uh, yeah, I have a I have a completed proposal. And it hasn't been sent to my publisher yet, but I have done all that work. Uh, and so, so that's also something you can do without going anywhere, obviously. The, the, the um, setting the foundation for where you will go and what will the book include. So I'm actually better prepared than normal. <laughs> uh, I, I've done more homework than usual because I've had the time or I can't travel. I can't, I can't do anything else. So, um, yeah. That sits around and waits until you're able to really start traveling again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 boy, back before Delta, I was, I was ready to hop on a plane and go somewhere. I like I'm vaccinated. Delta the variant, not the airline. Sorry. Yes. Delta the variant. Yeah. I wonder if people, you know, as in people who wouldn't buy Corona beer, are people not flying Delta now? Well, I've got another five or six weeks of uh, media for this book. So that's going to keep me fairly, you know, in a, you know, not busy, busy, but it eats up my time and that's fine. It's something to do. And, and I'm hoping that the, the Delta surge, you know, I, I remember following it in India because I had been there and I knew people there and I was in touch with them. So I was following very closely the numbers and it skyrocketed and then almost as abruptly dropped off. So I'm, I'm hoping that's the case here that it it runs its course fairly rapidly and then things will kind of n- n- we'll have an, another trough and at that point hopefully i'll get a booster and then this sounds so optimistic doesn't it? and i'll be good to go the world will be all normal again it's so weird to have felt that same thing four or five times over the past year and a half i used to travel all the time for work i um you know, I would be on San Francisco like eight eight times a year and, and on a plane at least once a month. And there were a few moments over the past year and a half where it felt like it was getting back to that. And it is just. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Dragged on. Yeah. And that, I yeah, breakthrough cases. I didn't see that coming to the extent that it seems to be. And then what's after Delta? You know, it'll be another letter named variant. I think, yeah. I think Lambda is floating around already. Yeah. 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 So uh, yeah, like hard to know where this is going. But I mean, it sounds like you didn't have any trouble being productive during this. I mean, I certainly had 
I mean, I had some health issues too, but like I had some moments where it was like really hard to sit down and just try to write about anything else. Well, I had, I was fortunate and I had a couple of projects that one, one was the kids adaptation of packing for Mars. So that didn't even require research. It was just taking 80,000 words, shrinking it to 20 and rewriting all 20,000, which I didn't anticipate that much rewriting, but apparently I'm not quite writing for a 10 year old audience almost, but not quite. Uh, so that was, uh, that was kind of an interesting thing that I could just sit in my office and do at home, my office at home. And then, and then I, uh, we're re-releasing stiff with a new epilogue. So that was just calling, uh, a dozen or so people getting sort of up to speed on what's changed since that book came out and writing it up. So those were comfortable, quiet things that I could work on. So that actually, that w- that was fine. I, I was definitely not <clears throat> working hard. Feel, and I wouldn't have the sense of like cramming on a deadline. It was a pretty mellow year and at times dull. Let's just say dull. Has a lot changed in the world of cadavers since that book came out? Not a whole lot. These things that people need cadavers for, they still need them for. There's more virtue, you know, they're like, they're the people, they're the people you hire when uh, you're going to do something damaging to a body and you can't have a human, a live human subject. So uh, that still exists. Yeah. What happened during the pandemic is anatomy classes went to all virtual teaching. Uh, rather than having a bunch of students in close contact around a cadaver, um, not because they were going to get COVID from the dead person, but just because having you know people in a lab indoors, yeah, they're classmates. So uh, there's been a move toward more virtual teaching, but most anatomy professors and most students still want to do actual dissection of a body because it's 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 more than just learning your way around. A body. It's also, you know, it's it, it's kind of a rite of passage. It's your first quote unquote student. I mean, patient. Uh, it's your first experience with death. It's it's kind of a an important part of <clears throat> medical school is the feeling. So I don't think that dissection is going to disappear. They'll probably, you know, it'll be it'll be, le- it'll be a less extensive, you know, maybe combining it with some virtual learning because there are some good programs, and there's new there are new some new areas of uh, cadaver work that, you know, cadaver research that weren't relevant back when the book came out. So there's there. Yeah. It's, it's not, we didn't read and re uh, we didn't change the, the text as it, that exists. It's just a, it's a epilogue, you know, 20, 20 or so pages at the end. I remember reading the book and I, I remember just, you know, having heard about medical students performing on cadavers and it just always, it struck me that that's a good moment to figure out how squeamish you are. And I assume that you can't be super squeamish if you're going to be a surgeon operating on live people. Yeah. And the other thing that you learn from a cadaver that you don't learn from a textbook or a virtual dissection is the unbelievable amount of variation from body to body, you know, the nerves and the tendons. And I mean, it, 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 variation is normal. Like when, you know, if you were only to learn it as sort of this idealized, here's the human body you would go into a real uh, patient and you go, well, this looks all wrong. This is weird. Something's wrong here. It's like, no, just people are wired differently. They're built differently. There's a tremendous amount of variation. So an anatomy lab is a place where, where, where students discover that 
you know, they're, they're, they're talking to the person at the next table. Do you see this weird thing? And then the instructor can say, yeah, that's, that's normal. That's how it goes. So yeah, I think it's going to be around for a while. I think, I think, I think cadavers will, they're, you know, they'll always have work. Better to say, what is this weird thing on a dead body than a live patient? Yeah, exactly. Like there was that, I don't know which book this is in and maybe it's in stiff. I can't remember, but because people learned anatomy on bodies lying down, you know, that, that was how they visualize all the internal structures and organs. They're, uh, 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 the effect of gravity is pulling it down toward the table because they're lying on their back. So when x-rays first came into play, when, when people were starting to see the body of, of you know, somebody sitting up, and they started, they, they thought this is, you know, that this, this, these organs have slipped, they've fallen. And there was this whole trend in like stitching them up because they looked like, you know, they're, oh, this person has a fallen liver or whatever. And there was this needless surgery going on. Uh, yeah, is that fascinating? I thought that was totally fascinating. They were basically doing plastic surgery for organs. But, yeah, yeah. Like this is organ facelifts. Yeah, 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 right. This is, this is a, a drooping. A drooping kidney. <laughs> we got to tack it up. So that process specifically didn't entail going back and really having to reread the book for you then? No, no, it didn't at all. I mean, I flipped through it just to remind myself of what is in it and therefore what might have changed. You know, I called, I was just checking in, like, let's see what's going on with body farms. Let's see what's going on with crash test dummies and automotive safety. Let's see what's going on. In all these various worlds, obviously not the historical stuff that hasn't changed. Could you ever foresee yourself doing a sequel book? Stiff 2. No, my editor brings that up every now and then. Mary, what about Stiff 2? That's what publishers do, right? Like, hey, we had this successful thing. Let's do it exactly yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, no. The epilogue was was fine. It's a, it's, a, it's a finite amount of text. It was something that I think it needed to be written because enough had changed that I didn't want the book to feel dated you know, so dated that it wouldn't continue to be um, used in, you know, people use it in anatomy classes and high school science classes. So I wanted to bring it up to date, but nah, there's not that much, you know, that, that it's not like there's a whole lot of new things being done with cadavers. If anything, there are, le- there are fewer, there's fewer needs, fewer, per- fewer uses for them as we develop more virtual programs and uh yeah packing for mars seems like something that could probably get a sequel at some point uh, yeah that could i mean the the uh kids book was was fun to do for that one yeah you could probably do although it's you know it, it, it's the basics of you know we're taking this entity a human being which evolved for earth gravity and we're putting it up in space without air without gravity with all the things Without the things it needs to survive, how do you deal with that? Plus the psychology of it, and that's pretty much un- that. That's pretty unchanged. I mean, there are certainly you know the space program and its goals have have uh, changed, and now we have you know private space race and Elon and Jeff and Richard and all of that. But that's sort of a different story. How was that experience of going back and not rewriting, but? I guess, kind of recontextualizing this older book. It was really fun. Initially, you know, my agent was like, that sounds as fun as cleaning out all your closets. You know, he was kind of like, why would you want to do that? And I said, because otherwise they're going to farm it out. To There are people whose job is to take an adult book 
and sort of run it through this grinder and spit out a kid's book. And, and my name would be on that. And I, because I have a particular voice, I mean, everyone has a voice, but I didn't feel comfortable with that. And I also, because of the pandemic, I had the time to do it. So, and I, uh, I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was more writing than I thought, but it was easy to get into that rhythm of, of just, you know, shorter, simpler sentences, um, not packing too much into one sentence, but, but, and I had a great editor who was very good at that works humor wise and that doesn't, and that is too complicated. I mean, he has a built in sense of what is appropriate for that age, age level. And it was once you kind of internalize that, uh, it's pretty quick going and it's kind of, it was kind of fun. I kind of enjoyed it. Could you see yourself at some point writing a kid's book from scratch? Sure. Yeah. I could imagine it for sure. Or, or even doing another adaptation, Uh, probably not bonk. (laughs) Um, not sure which one, but even stiff possibly. I don't know. Um, I could definitely imagine doing that again. Related to bonk. That was a question I had about packing for Mars is there are also some sort of, there, there's some kind of brandier. I guess my question is, is did the, did the poop stuff stay? Oh, the poop stuff. Yeah, absolutely. The poop stuff stayed. The sex chapter did not. That's gone. The, the, that's been excised. Oh yeah. The, 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 the poop chapter for sure is there. If anything, it probably plays better to 10 year olds. That's a, that's a fun one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was pretty, it was pretty easy to know what, where to make the cuts. No, it wasn't, it was, um, it was, it, was, it was a satisfying project, especially a good, you know, pandemic project. I was reading a, one of the sort of very few early interviews that you've done that are out there around us. You know, you had mentioned that uh, you had done all the traveling, but for one specific chapter, which was the raccoon chapter. Yeah, that's right. And I want to know what we're missing out. On the, the raccoon chapter. The raccoon chapter actually was more of a. It was, it was Toronto has a lot of media around their raccoon problem. I think it may be a product of the media attention. I don't know that they. I have no idea. They maybe have no more raccoons than Oakland. I don't know. But they got there. It's been in the press a lot. So I thought I would spend some time with. Um, I wanted. You know, I have in the book as it is now. At the end, um, kind of a more practical guide for, you know, fuzzy trespassers like and what to do. So that I was going to do that as a, a more normal chapter with a narrative and go out with somebody who's a humane wildlife control operator and spend, you know, go out because raccoons are mostly nocturnal. Go out uh, and pull an all nighter with the raccoon guy and uh, see, just you know learn what it is that people can do. If, you know, the raccoons are breaking in or whatever. It was going to be a fairly practical short chapter with a setting and a character and a scene. Whereas now it's sort of a, just as a resource guide at the end of the book, that's what it became. So uh, it was, it, it was an easy thing to let go of. It wasn't uh, particularly critical or groundbreaking reporting going on there. 